Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Our message this morning is more of an overview of this next uh, chapter, uh, uh, next 16 chapters of Isaiah. We have crossed a significant milestone in our study of this book, um, and from 39 to chapter 40 is, um, is, a, is a big shift. There's uh, very little debate amongst Old Testament scholars as to um, whether uh, there should be a break between 39 and 40. There's, it's just so obvious, and, um, and there's a shift not only in content, but a, a shift in tone. Uh, it's just totally different from this point on. Things change dramatically. The primary focus of the uh, first 39 chapters of Isaiah is whether Judah is going to trust God's promises as they stare down you know, various existential threats from the surrounding nations, or whether they're going to anchor their trust to their own efforts, you know, their own uh, diplomatic alliances, and their own works. And uh, that's the big question that, that the first 39 chapters are dealing with. And the narrative, which we looked at over the course of two messages uh, between chapters 36 and 39, hammers that message home. It, it sort of brings it all to a head. Everywhere we saw individuals in those chapters walking by faith, we saw the Lord's compassion and his grace and his mercy being just lavished on those who were humble. When Hezekiah stood firm in his faith as, as the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, uh, it was his trust in the Lord's word that ultimately caused him to stand firm and for the Lord to establish him. When Hezekiah turned to the Lord in prayer in chapter 38, on pains of death, uh, a terminal illness had overtaken him, yet his, because he trusted the Lord, his life was spared and his life was prolonged by 15 years. So everywhere we see people walking by faith, God's grace is poured out. But everywhere we saw hearts walking in rebellion and pride and self-sufficiency, we saw the Lord's judgment and his discipline and his chastening. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, exalted himself and the Lord shut him down. Hezekiah was filled with pride, but God's people will go into exile. And every time I say Assyria, Siri turns on on this iPad. <laughs> I got to find a way to shut that off. <laughs> but as we saw at the end of chapter 39 last week, even faithful Hezekiah falters um, when the ruler of the Babylonian regional province his name was Merodach Baladin. He's given, we, we were introduced to him in chapter 39. When, when that individual comes and plays on Hezekiah's pride, he sends an envoy with letters and a gift to thank him for, for God's miraculous healing. Um, we see his pride indulged. Second Chronicles chapter 32 in, in verse 31 pulls back the curtain and tells us that in spite of all the success and all the prosperity that Hezekiah enjoyed as king, it says, quote, in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon, that God left him alone to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. God purposely left Hezekiah to his own flesh to show him, and ultimately to show all of us, that apart from God's enabling grace, man is absolutely hopeless. Not only that, God testing Hezekiah and the king's you know, resulting defection from the Lord in pride made clear to us, we saw, that exile for Judah was inevitable. 
They, they were going into exile because the kings, Hezekiah's inconsistency to trust God alone is really a, a microcosm of the inconsistency of the people to trust God alone. Isaiah wants us to know that the final, he ends in the way he does in chapter 39, so that we understand that final salvation will never be realized through an earthly ruler. There is no king who will ever bring that in. And as we come to the end of 39, we are left with this question, the lingering question of chapter 1 and verses 21 to 26. It is still not answered. How, in chapter 1, does the faithless city become a faithful city? How will God's people finally be convinced to trust him and his word and to make that that posture of trust and dependence the, the enduring pattern of their lives? How is that going to happen? Because even after uh, Israel, Judah goes into exile and, and, and then comes back, the spiritual issues are still there. They still have a wayward heart. And the question is, can that be remedied? And how can that be remedied? And if so, by whom? These words, these, the, these, these questions would have lingered at the time of the exile and even afterward as the generation that comes back into the land is faced with this overwhelming task of rebuilding the temple and reestablishing worship and rebuilding the city after seven decades of captivity in a foreign land. And so Isaiah 40 to 66 become God's answer to the unresolved questions of the first 39 chapters. We've seen already at many different times words of promise scattered throughout these, these chapters. We've seen glimpses of kingdom glory, like in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. We've seen uh, glorious pictures of Messiah's reign in chapter 9 and chapter 11. We, we've seen a, a glimpse of the future in 25 to 20, chapters 25 to 27, and even in chapter 35, that the ultimate promises are made. We have seen God's people, both Jew and Gentile, standing triumphant with the Lord, reigning over renewed heaven and earth. We know it's going to happen because the Lord's word is true. His word is trustworthy. The question is, how and by whom? That's what will be made clear to us as we go into chapters 40 to 60, as we study chapters 40 to 66. These chapters were meant to sustain Israel and Judah in exile and in the period after the exile by giving them the knowledge that ultimate renewal and restoration was still to come. And despite all that was going on around them, in the end, it is the Lord who is the King of Kings, and it is the Lord who is worthy of all of our trust. God hadn't been defeated by the false gods of Babylon or Persia. He hadn't even been defeated by Israel's faithlessness and their rebellion. The message of Isaiah like he says in chapter 45 in verse 23, that to God every knee will bow and every tongue will swear in allegiance. That is one of the primary themes of this whole section that we're about to look at. And it's meant to comfort and it's meant to fuel hope. If God's in control and if God sits on the throne like we've sung this morning and his words are true and will come to pass, the question, the rhetorical question is why would you give in to fear? Why would you allow yourself to be taken captive by a foolish and fruitless idolatry? 
So what I want to do this morning is basically survey the territory we're about to conquer over the next several weeks as we study chapters 40 to 55. Because we need to get a panoramic picture of the forest before we start to inspect all the trees. And so my goal this morning is to kind of give us a survey of what we might call the book of the servant, which is all these chapters, 40 to 55. And then we'll tie it all together at the end with some very specific applications. So to just give you an overview of where are we going this morning, in chapters 40 to 42, we're going to see an overview. It's going to describe the reassurance of God's care. The reassurance of God's care. In chapters 42 to 44, we will see the revelation of God's plan. In 44 to 48, we see the rescue through the Lord's anointed. And in chapters 49 to 55, we see the redemption through the Lord's servant. Now, we're going to look at these sections in more detail in the coming weeks, but that's kind of an overview of of the whole section. The reassurance of God's care, the revelation of his plan, rescue through the Lord's anointed nationally, and redemption through the Lord's servant spiritually. So I want to begin just by surveying chapters 40 to 42, where we see the reassurance of God's care. Uh, chapters 40 and 41, in many ways, they are act like a bridge between 1 to 39 and 42 to 66. And like a diligent cr- uh, child that's crossing the street, they look both ways. They look back at the unresolved issues of 1 to 39, specifically the problem of man's alienation from God and the lingering question of how the curse will be overcome. But they also, these chapters also look forward They look forward to the redemptive work of the servant and the heavenly kingdom that will be realized through the anointed warrior that we'll see in chapters 56 to 66. You remember last Sunday in chapter 39 in verses 5 to 7, Hezekiah gives in to his pride and and Isaiah brings a word to the Lord promising that eventually, not in Hezekiah's lifetime, but eventually his descendants will be made um, would be taken a captive and deported to Babylon, and uh, even his descendants would be uh, made eunuchs. And so what we see at the, in chapters 39, 5 to 7, is God's covenant promises to David appear to be teetering on a knife's edge, because God said he would always have a man on the throne. And, and so there was, there's all this wonder, like, is, is, are God's words true? But no sooner does Hezekiah received this word of judgment that as we turn the page, so to speak, in chapter 40, we read words of comfort that are given in the opening verses of chapter 40. In verse 1, it says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Right? I mean, this is, this is it. The, the word of judgment is immediately met with the words of comfort. God's people had abandoned him but he had not abandoned them. Like children who have stumbled and fallen and are now scuffed up and bruised, their heavenly father is going to rush in to scoop them up and to console them in his everlasting arms. Look at verse 11. He says, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, God will. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. I mean, this is this beautiful imagery of the Lord as a shepherd. And how can Judah be so sure that God will be there to pick them up and dust them off? Well, the answer is given in the verses that follow in chapter 42. He's the creator of heaven and earth. 
Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Verse 22, he says, it is he who sits above the, God is the one who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them, he says, is missing. The argument is really an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God is able to create everything and name all the stars of heaven and not one of those stars slips his mind, how could he possibly forget his people and let them slip through his grasp? I mean, it's absurd. It's impossible. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. In other words, it's unsearchable. It's so great. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I mean, this is what God does. He says, I don't get tired. You get tired, and then I make you not tired. That's what I do. And of course, what's true of God toward his covenant people is true of the world as a whole. The Lord is the Lord of history. He is the managing director of everything. We've already saw that in chapters 13 to 23, and that's reiterated here in chapter 41. Look at verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings, God makes them like dust with his sword as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. It says he pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not traversed with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? The answer, of course, is the end of verse 4. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. Yahweh raises up the world's rulers and as we see in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 41, he exposes, he exposes the world's idolatry. As we come to chapter 42, we're finally introduced to this individual who is, takes center stage as we go through this whole section, and that is the Lord's servant. The Lord's servant. He is the one who is going to bring justice and usher in divine truth, not just for Israel, but for the nations. Verse 40, uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 42, chapter 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not uh, extinguish. Excuse me. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly 
for his law. God's personal chosen agent filled with the Holy Spirit's power is going to be the source, he says here, of worldwide blessing that will extend to the nations. God's covenant people, Israel, were supposed to be that. They were supposed to be the billboard to, to tell the world about God's character, his holiness, his righteousness, and his way of salvation. But they had failed. Over and over again, they had failed. And, and that deafness and that blindness is reiterated in these chapters once again. And so it will fall to God himself to deliver mankind. It will fall to the Lord's servant to usher in the salvation that is necessary. And so as we read these opening chapters, even all the way up to chapter 17 of verse, excuse me, verse 17 of chapter 42, these words are meant to reassure God's people that he is compassionately caring for them. He has not forsaken them. And as depressing as the judgment of exile was back in chapter 39, that, they, and that all that Hezekiah had and all that he had uh, been given by God would be carried away to Babylon, as depressing as that was, immediately God's words of comfort are meant to be heartening, are meant to instill confidence that the Lord still cares. They are, they are under exile, but they are not forsaken. So in chapters 40 to 42, we see the reassurance of God's care. In, beginning in chapter 42 and verse 18, all the way to chapter 44 and verse 23, we see the revelation of God's plan. God details, by way of revelation, his future plans. If Israel isn't capable of carrying the light of the knowledge of God to the nations, then God will do it himself. And so these chapters... Uh, in these chapters, God's future plan promises two things. One, captivity will be ended by national uh, liberation. Their captivity will come to an end as they are liberated. You see that in chapter 42 and 43. And then, secondly, sin will be dealt with by spiritual redemption. Both of those realities are laid out in these three chapters. The reality is that all the idols of God's people that they have been chasing after. They are not gods of any kind, and so they are completely useless to do anything. They cannot intervene in history. They cannot cleanse spiritually, and God wants to make that clear. You look at chapter 43 and verse 10. The end, he says, Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? God's people are going to go into bondage in Babylon, but their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, will bring them back out of captivity yet again, just like he did when he took them out of Egypt. And you see that in verse 16 of chapter 43. Thus says the Lord who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Verse 19, behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. 
The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, he promises, will declare my praise. This is Exodus imagery. Can you see it? Walking through the desert, water, rivers flowing, destroying enemy army, you know, enemy armies, parting the waters, a path through the waters. That's all Exodus imagery. He says, he says that's what I'm going to do. I redeemed Israel once before out of Egypt, and I'm going to do it again. I take them out of Babylon. But all along, but along with the national deliverance that he promises, the plan that he lives out, he promises spiritual renewal also. And you see that in chapter 43, beginning in verses 22 and following. He says, yet, you have not called on me, Jacob, but, have not, uh, and, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. And I have not burned you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you've burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. In other words, Israel, you're not what you ought to be. This is not a new message. They had forsaken God. They did not partake of those. Uh, they did not participate in the sacrifices that they were to give. They certainly weren't given with the right spirit. But in spite of all that, verse 25, he says, I, even I, the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake, will do it, and I will not remember your sins. And we don't get, this, we don't get the specifics here of how God is going to forgive their sin and wipe away their transgression. He simply promises and says, I am going to do this. I will do it. And only the true and living God can do that. Only the true and living God can deliver his people from bondage and cleanse them from their sin. No idol can make that happen. And that's really one of the key messages of this whole section. No idol can make that happen. And certainly no idol can tell you they're going to do it before it happens. And so God says, as he does in chapter 44 and verse 7, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it and to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient, ancient nation and let them declare to me the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. He says, uh, who, who, who can tell you what's going to happen before it happens? Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Verse 8. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any rock besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. I mean, God's just basically saying, if you think you can measure up to me, step forward. And of course, none can do that. So he lays out his plans, his plans for national deliverance uh, out of bondage and also spiritual deliverance by wiping away their sins. So with God's plans revealed then, Isaiah turns in chapter 44, beginning in verse 24, and all the way to chapter 48, and thirdly, we see the rescue that he's going to accomplish through the Lord's anointed. We are going to see the rescue that the Lord, uh, through the Lord's anointed. God's going to raise up a Gentile ruler, and this Gentile ruler is going to be given interesting titles. He's called God's shepherd, 
And he's also referred to as his anointed. Look at chapter 40, uh, chapter 44 and verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundations will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. Because God's sovereign hand is so powerfully with Cyrus, all the Lord wants to accomplish through him, he promises is going to be fulfilled. Everything God attends, intends to accomplish through this individual will be accomplished. And he even identifies him by name. This is, this is hundreds of years before Cyrus even existed, before the Persian Empire was anything. It just reiterates that the Lord truly is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. God, we've seen already, raises up Assyria to accomplish his purposes. He's promised to use Babylon to accomplish his purposes. And here we see him raising up the Persian Empire to accomplish his purposes. And as much as we deceive ourselves into thinking and believing that we have God on a string, as we read through chapters 40 to 55, we're reminded that the Lord's words uh, in chapter 45, verse 21, are true and we have absolutely nothing. We have no control over anything. In chapter 45, verse 21, God says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. God's utter uniqueness is front and center in these chapters. Over and over again, he says, There is no one like me. In, in chapters 46 to 47, these chapters would have been just a cup of cold water in the desert of Babylonian exile as you read through them. God reminds his children of his faithfulness and his covenant love despite all their indifference, in spite of all their rebellion. Verse 3 of chapter 46, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. I mean, just beautiful imagery here. God says, I'm with you to the bitter end. And not only is our God a faithful, covenant-keeping God, our God is utterly unique, and he does whatever he pleases. Verse 8, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressor, transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And it's so detailed, verse 11, it goes all the way down to calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Not even the mighty Babylonians can stand up against God's purposes when he chose Cyrus 
and the Persian Empire to, dis- to move against Babylon. And that is described and laid out in chapter 47. You see this lament for Babylon, who thought they were untouchable. And chapter 48 of this section summarizes really all that's come before it in the previous three chapters. He basically says at the end of chapter 48, I speak and I deliver, right? I promise, I fulfill. God says, I am going to lead this people out of bondage. Verse 20 of chapter 48, he actually gives the command, go forth from Babylon, free from the Chalde- flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the ends of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. Again, this is wilderness imagery. God is going to take them out of bondage, out of captivity, and bring them back to the land. He is going to accomplish this through Cyrus, who is the Lord's anointed. So God has detailed his plan of national liberation out of exile through this, his anointed. But, it's also, but he also promises spiritual redemption. And chapters 49 to 55 explain how God plans to carry that out. He's going to do it through the Lord's servant. Through the Lord's servant. God had brought his people, will bring his people out of captivity. But they still need to come to him. They still need to be reconciled to him. And in fact, verse 22 of chapter 48 it reads like a caption to their whole time in Babylon. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. It's almost like a postscript to their time in Babylon. Israel had forsaken the way of peace. And even though they will come back to the land, their hearts are still wayward. Their hearts are still wicked. It's been said that the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. And that was Israel's issue. That's our issue. If salvation is going to come There can't just be a change of venue. There has to be a change of heart. And so what unfolds here in 49 to 50, from 49 to 52, um, it unfolds like a, a dialogue between God and Israel. Sometimes Israel speaking, most of the time God is speaking. And God promises to save them. He promises to restore them. But that promise of salvation is met with an accusation by Israel that God has forgotten them. You see that in chapter 49 in verse 14. But Zion said, this is what Israel is saying, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. I mean, that's their claim. They're in exile. You know, it seems like God has walked away. But listen to God's response. Makes clear that He has never and will never forsake his people. Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, God says. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders hurry, your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. Verse 18, lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. And then God gives this affirmation, as I live, 
declares the Lord. You will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride. God goes on to explain in chapters 50 and 51 that he will increase their number, that they will be so prosperous and so numerous that they're going to run out of space. You see that at the end of chapter 49. And he says in verse 26 that he's going to punish their enemies so that all the flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And even though God sent them into exile, he wants them to know at the beginning of chapter 50 that it is not divorce, but discipline for their iniquity and their transgression. He, he, he says, I, I sent you away because of your sin, but it's not forever. And this dialogue unfolds over chapters 50, 51, and 52 with, with promises of restoration, promises that God would establish righteous, righteousness within them. He even exhorts them to look sharp and be ready for that deliverance. In chapter 51 and verse 17, he says, Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. Arise, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of his reeling. You have drained it to the dregs. Chapter 52, he says, Awake, awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city. I mean, he's saying, look sharp. Deliverance is coming. And that is what takes us to the doorstep of chapter 53, in which the Lord's servant's saving work is developed and it is described in the most vivid and triumphant way. The problem of man's sin is finally and completely going to be dealt with. All throughout We've seen God's promises throughout this book. We've seen God promise to forgive iniquity, to wash away their sins, uh, to um, establish righteousness in them. But we never really understood how. We never really understood who was going to do that for them. That was a mystery. How, how does God, holy and just, how does he simply forgive sin? How, how does a righteous judge simply acquit the guilty. That would seem to be a miscarriage of justice. That would seem to, you can't just sweep it under a rug. How does God deal with sin? And the answer is given to us in chapter 53. It is through a perfect substitute. Chapters 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But here, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It pleased, verse 10, the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. And if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. The Lord's servant 
The Lord's servant will become the guilt offering to his heavenly Father to uphold God's righteousness and to save his people. As Paul points out in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, because God poured out his wrath for our sin on his Son, God is, demonstrates himself both just, in other words, that he punishes sin, and at the same time, he demonstrates himself to be a justifier or literally a righteousifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can do both at the same time. This is the great exchange, right? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as Isaiah points out here in chapter 53, the Lord's servant is vindicated by a life after death. Verse 10, he will see his offspring. This one who has given his life as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. This is, this is life after death. And all of it is laid out for us in, in incredible detail in Isaiah 53. In the results of the servant's gracious substitutionary work, we see that unfold in chapters 54 and 55. First, toward the nation of Israel in chapter 54, as they're delivered from her afflictions and crowned with righteousness. And second, toward all the nations of the earth, as membership among the people of God is then extended to all who will turn and trust in the servant's work. So 55 begins, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Verse 4, behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, speaking of the Gentiles, a leader and commander for the peoples, not just for Israel, but for the nations. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. And then he gives this resounding call in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I mean, this is the offer of salvation extended not just to Israel but to the nations. And it comes through the servant's work. And this book of the servant ends in, in verse 12 and 13 with all creation rejoicing. Where the imagery is of the curse reversed. No longer thorn bushes and nettles and those things, but, but joyful shouting, clapping of hands, cypresses and myrtles spring forth. All is, all is made right. Creation released from the bondage of corruption, shares in the freedom of the children of God. That's the picture at the end in verses uh, 12 and 13. And so we see the redemption, the redemption through the Lord's servant. So as we look at these chapters, 40 to 55, other than that, there's not much else here. So. 
having stood on the plain, no, having stood on these plains of Moab, so to speak, like Moses, and surveyed the good land that's before us, I want to pull our thoughts together with some concluding application. What does the book of the servant teach us? And we'll unpack some of these again in the coming weeks, but well, three things stand out. First, as we dig through and explore the historical context and, and, and get the lay of the land and understand all these, all these things, this, the, this portion of Isaiah lays bare attitudes of compromise and unbelief that are common to every one of our hearts. Uh, idolatry, fear of man, uh, doubting God's promises. Those are spiritual issues that are unique to Judah excuse me, that are not unique just to Judah and Israel, they're common to all of us, right? There is no temptation, Paul says, that is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. Like, we've all been there. We've all struggled with idolatry. We've all struggled and struggled with fear of man. We all struggle with trusting God's promises and, and, and creeping doubt. So, so in a sense, as we go through these chapters, there's a, there's a reality that we are like them in some ways. And yet, at the same time, we have to recognize we're not exactly the same as Israel and, and that we are not under the Mosaic Covenant, that we stand at, as Christ's church between two monumental events in human history, the cross and Christ's return. We stand between that. And so we look backward and we read these chapters through the lens of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. We can't not see it as we look at these chapters. Nor are we meant to not see it. We're meant to see it. But we also look ahead to the consummation of God's kingdom program when Christ will come back and all that's promised will ultimately be brought to fulfillment. We do both. So yes, we approach God on the same basis as Israel, by God's grace and through faith, with the same expectations of obedience that God had of them. But the difference is, that the Lord's servant has come and the price of our redemption has been paid. And Hebrews says the Messiah sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the triune God has poured out his spirit on us in his church. And he lives within every believer, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next, from the inside out. And so as Galatians 3 says, the blessing promised to Abraham has come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that we have received the promise of the Spirit through faith. We stand there. And so while there are similarities, there are distinct differences. God deals with us not as rebels, but as what? Sons and daughters. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. God chastens us to prepare us for glory. So he deals with us differently than he deals with much of Israel and Judah. And the promises of 40 to 55 have largely been fulfilled. They were made, when they were made, they weren't realities yet, but so many of them have been fulfilled. Christ has come, they've been delivered out of captivity, right? But we still wait for Messiah's reign. We still long for a new heaven and a new earth. And so these, these chapters will, will um, bring us, you know, commonality. We'll see commonalities with their condition and their situation. We'll see differences. Secondly, in 40 to 55, we, uh, these, these chapters teach us that God's people should be some of the most firmly grounded, calm, and composed people on the planet. 
I think if you take one thing away from these chapters, it has to be this, that God's people should be firmly grounded, calm, and composed, maybe above any other person on the planet, God's people should be. I'm always surprised how many Christians walk through life wringing their hands about all the sinful people and all the sinful things happening around them. And I don't just mean in this church. I just mean in general, as you talk with other believers. There are a lot of chicken littles in our churches. The sky is falling. What's behind that? A lot of that is fear. It is nothing more than fear. Sometimes it's pride mixed with fear. This belief that if I'm just diligent enough, I can preempt and stop all the bad people in the world doing all their bad things. But you can't do that. You, You can't. Because none of us are God. And there's no way we can wrap our minds around everything that's going on, nor can we get out in front of everything that's going to happen before it happens. And secondly, we can't do that because God ultimately allows evil people and bad things to touch our lives at times to make us more like his son. It's part of his plan. Read the book of Job. God allowed that to happen for Job's benefit, not for God's. Have we forgotten Paul's words in Romans 8 that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him? Have we forgotten the words of Jesus who said in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who shall be saved. We have to understand, beloved, the Christian life is about endurance and perseverance not command and control. The the Christian life is about endurance, persevering faith. Matthew 10, verse 24, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher and a slave is not above his master. If If they have called the head of the house Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And the application in verse 26 is this, therefore, he says to his disciples, don't fear them. See? That's the problem, is fear. There is nothing concealed, Jesus says, that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And so you and I don't have to, we don't have to run around trying to convince everyone the sky is falling. Nor is it profitable to expend our limited time and energy and even relational capital trying to expose and prosecute every moral, social, and political evil in the world. Because God's going to do it for us. Vengeance belongs to him, not to us. And he'll do it with perfect knowledge. He will do it with perfect justice, which is far, far better than we can ever do. You say, well, then what, what role do we have? Matthew 10 and verse 27, Jesus says, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Our job is to testify of the gospel of the kingdom. Our job, our mission, our limited time, energy, relational capital is to be expended for proclaiming Christ and obeying his word so that our lives can back up that kingdom message. That's what we need to do. And Isaiah 40 to 55 is a challenge. It is a challenge for us to live calm, composed, and confident, understanding that our God reigns. He reigns. 
And we're going and, and that's bookended in this whole section. In chapter 40, verse 9, our God reigns. In chapter 52 and verse 7, our God reigns. A third point of application. Another overarching benefit of these chapters is that they draw us into Christ. They draw us to Christ. Like thirsty travelers coming to a cold, clear spring to drink, we are invited as we read these chapters to come to the servant, the substitute, the sacrifice for our sins. As we read through these chapters and study them, we are going to see his sovereign rule, God's inexhaustible power, his blazing righteousness and glory, his tender compassion, his abundant grace, his unyielding faithfulness, and maybe more than anything, his uniqueness. There is no one like me, says the Lord. These chapters invite us to place our trust in Christ alone, and then they nudge us along in greater dependence and trust. The way into the Christian life, the way we enter into Christ, is the way on in Christ. It's all by faith. It's all by faith. The entirety of your Christian life, my Christian life, is one of faith, believing the promises of God and obeying the commands of God. And if you're in Christ this morning, you're accounted as one of the redeemed of the Lord. And the opening declaration of chapter 40, verse 9, here is your God, is carried forward through the entire unit and echoes with mighty assurance near the close in chapter 52 and verse 7, your God reigns. This is the purpose of the servant's work, to redeem a people for himself and to restore all things to himself. So the question is, how will the faithless city become a faithful city? And the answer is given to us in 40 to 55. It is through the work of the servant. It is his substitutionary, sacrificial work and the promises of God fulfilled that we see this. This is this is saved sinners. This is God's greatest glory, and, is, and it is our highest joy. So that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this just sweeping picture of your control of human history yet again. We're, we're, we confess, Lord, we, we are so easily caught up in the moment. We, we think that Everything that's happening around us is the most urgent thing ever and the most egregious thing ever and the most hopeless thing ever. And we have to realize that this is just one small, we are just one small speck in the, the timeline of human history. Uh, this is all momentary light affliction, the, the scriptures say. Uh, we, we are to trust you. We are to look expectantly to you. Help us to, to look to Christ and pray that Christ would rise to the foreground here as we study these chapters in the coming weeks. Help us to see you, uh, see ourselves rightly, see you in all of your glory. May we come away with a clear vision of you such that we would know you and walk with you with greater faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for the servant's work. It's what brings us together as your church. It is what has... Um, uh, it is the message that we herald. It is the, it is the reason we gather around this table that we're about to participate in. And we thank you for it, Lord. And we pray that we would herald that good news and declare that our God reigns. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. 
For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.